My name is Mike Moran. I'm uh, one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my priv- privilege to be here with you. Is it hot enough for you? <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you why it's hot. It's not global warming. Okay? It has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with global warming. This is why it's hot out. It's because Labor Day weekend, the Morans took down their pool in the backyard. <laughs> and, and as I was taking down the pool, I, said, I turned to my wife and I said, you know what's going to happen. You know, September is going to be the hottest month, <laughs> and I was dead on, dead on. And uh, so, but regardless of the weather, we, we take this time that is typically considered fall uh, to, to talk about who we are as a church, who we are as a body of followers of Jesus Christ. And so we're in this series that we're calling uh, Don't Go to Church, and so we've been using this opportunity as uh, this time as an opportunity to debunk some of the heresies uh, about church that are out there, some of the myths, some of the incorrect thinking about what it means to be the church. And so we kicked the whole thing off by talking about the fact that you don't go to church, right? We are the church, the body of Jesus Christ. The church is not a building. It's not even a, a, a Sunday morning event that we have here on Sunday mornings. We, you are the church. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're involved in community here, you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And then last week we talked about worship. We talked about worship, that worship isn't singing, is it? Okay? We tend to like to think, so. okay, we're going to worship the Lord now. Okay? And then we all start singing a song. But it's much, much more than that. Worship is, is all of life. It has to do with, with all of life. And, you know, Paul in the book of Romans chapter 12 he says, he says to give your whole life, your whole self over to God. And he says, this is your reasonable act of worship. This is the logical thing for you to be doing. It's all, it's all of life. And today we're going to talk about one other myth, one other heresy about the church. And there's this, this odd thinking out there. And, and, and you know, it's, it's kind of filtered into our thinking and our speaking. And Michelle kind of, uh, kind of alluded to it as we were talking about, you know, sending these people over to Russia, is that we think there's this two-tiered class of people in the body of Jesus Christ. That there's this kind of like this hierarchy. There's these, there's these green beret Christians that really take this stuff seriously and go overseas, okay? And then there's the rest of us, the normal people. And, and that's really convenient because that kind of absolves us of doing any kind of work of any kind. You know, all we got to do is like you know, write checks for these people and pray for them occasionally and stuff like that and send them over. But we don't have to do anything. They're, they're the missionaries, okay? Have you ever heard that word, right? They're the, they're the missionaries. They're the ones that we send over overseas. When, as a matter of fact, the, the Bible doesn't know anything of that kind of dichotomy, that kind of dualistic thinking, that there's a special class of people, um, the word missionary simply means to be a sent one. That's the etymology of the word missionary. You're a sent one. I like using the word etymology because it makes you sound smart. That's the etymology of the word missionary. <laughs> you're to be a sent one. It's to be a sent one by God. And, and I was really confused because my wife and I, we lived overseas in Russia for about 10 years. And when they sent us overseas, they sent us as missionaries to Russia, and we lived and we thought of ourselves as missionaries. But then our very last day in Russia, the day before we got on the plane to leave, we 
gathered the whole church that we started over there, gathered us together. And they said, we want to bring up the Moran family. And they brought the Moran family up. And they, then the leadership of the church we started in Russia all laid hands on us. And we said, we're commissioning and we're sending out the Moran family to be our missionaries back to America. And so they sent us back to America as missionaries. So we're really confused. We're, we're really confused as to what it means. But the reality is, is that we are all missionaries. We're all sent ones. And, and Alan Hirsch, who's an author from Australia, he says the great need of the American church in the 21st century in this post-Christian, this post-modern world that we live in is for us to rediscover what does it mean to be sent ones into our world, for the church to be sent ones. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. This morning we're going to be reading together what it looks like to be a sent one. And um, we're going to be looking not, is interesting, we're not going to be looking at the New Testament, we're going to be looking at a person in the Old Testament. You'll find that, I think it's on page 487. Is that right? 487 in your book? Now to just give you some background, of uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet of God. He's being called and invited by God to be God's spokesperson to the nation of Israel. Now, these are very dark days in the nation of Israel. There's actually there's civil war. So the, 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 the 12 tribes of Israel are now divided. There are two camps. There are two tribes in the south called Judah. And then there's 10 tribes in the north called Israel. It gets kind of confusing. But just kind of bear with me. Northern and southern tribes. And uh, the northern tribes are kind of, they're really bad. They, they are just characterized by wickedness and rebellion and immortality and all sorts of idolatry and stuff like that. And so they're about to be taken away by the Assyrians, these big, this big bad superpower that God was going to use to take them away. Judah in the south is faring a little bit better, but not much, Okay. They also have their own struggles, okay? And they also are falling into all sorts of just evil practices of the, the nations around them. Both, na- both nations, the northern and southern tribe, were, were called out to be God's distinct people amongst all the nations. And they're failing miserably. They're failing miserably. And in the midst of this, God is calling Isaiah to be his spokesperson, to be his prophet and to speak to the people. So, let's read Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. We're going to talk about what does it look like to be called as a missionary. In the year that King Uzziah died, well, I also have it up here, yeah, on the screen here, if you want to follow along. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of, from the altar. Uh, With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, 
here I am. Here am I. Send me. And we'll just stop right there at that part. And so just take some time to take a look at this. The first thing I want us to notice about this passage is that if you're going to be a missionary, the whole thing begins with worship of the living God. Isaiah is caught up in this incredible vision of the holiness of God. Okay? And he, he sees this incredible thing. I don't think he was probably in the temple. I think he was probably somewhere in prayer. And he got caught up and caught a vision of what it actually looks like to be in the presence of God. And there's all this activity going on. And there are these things called seraphs. And, you know, we don't see seraphs mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. So we don't know too much about them. They have six wings and they're, they're covering their, their faces and their feet. And there's probably all sorts of symbolism that's going on here. But not so much of what they're doing is it's more important what they're actually saying. And what they're saying is that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, holiness is this attribute of God that is, that is reserved specially, distinctly for Him. The, the, the Hebrew word holy actually means to cut or to be set apart. God is totally set apart from anything else. He's totally other. He's in a category by himself. He's completely and utterly holy. And he's set apart from us in a category of all by himself in his moral superiority, in his perfection, in his, you know, in his just purity from any kind of sin. And it's his holiness that will not allow any kind of sin to enter into his presence. Okay? And, and the seraphs are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. This is the only thing, R.C. Sproul says, this is the only thing that you see said of God three times. You don't see that God is love, love, love. You don't see that God is just, just, just. But you do see that God is holy, holy, holy. It is one of his dominant attributes. He is completely other than us in a category all by himself. And it is his holiness that makes him utterly and completely worthy of our worship. Of our worship. And, and so Isaiah begins with, with, with worship of, uh, of the living God. And he has the most appropriate response when you're placed in front of the holiness of God. He says, woe is me! <laughs> you know, like, I am in trouble. I am in big trouble right now because... In light of the holiness of God, he now begins to see himself in contrast to that, in, in, in contrast to God's moral perfection. It's like it's this black dot in front of a of white screen. You know, all of a sudden Isaiah sees himself for who he is. He says, for, he goes, I am in trouble for I am a man of unclean lips. Okay, and I've seen the Lord. Now, the Hebrews rightly understood that if anybody saw the Lord, if anybody saw the Lord, that they would instantly die. Okay, this would instantly die. And this is exactly what God says. Do you remember in, Hebrew, in Exodus chapter 33, when the Israelites are out in the, in, the, in the wilderness, in the desert, and Moses says, listen, God, unless you go with us into the desert, then we're not going. And God says, okay, okay, I'll go with you. And then, and then Moses gets a little more bolder. He says, he says, okay, God, he goes, he goes, but now I really want to see you. Like, I want to see you in all of your glory. I want to see what really makes you God. 
And God says to him, uh, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because if I show you myself in all of my glory, you'll cease to exist. It says, no one can see me and live. And, and, and this is the appropriate response that Isaiah is having. In fact, whenever anybody in the scriptures has a vision of the glory and grandeur and majesty of God in any way, shape, or form, and they, they, they intuitively have this recoil and this reaction of, of who they are. Job, in Job 42, after God has blown his mind in this series of visions and, and just prophetic utterances, Job says, who am I? I repent in sackcloth and ashes, you know, because I have seen the Lord. Peter, after, after Jesus uh, gives him that miraculous catch of fish, remember, he says, hey, guys, you know, have you caught anything? And then he says, well, why don't you try and, you know, on the other side, they catch this huge, huge catch of fish, and then they can barely drag it up on shore. And Peter, realizing that Jesus is not your ordinary character, you know, they're playing with someone special and unique here, what does he do? He falls down on his knees before Jesus and he, he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For I am a sinful man. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't let him stay there. He, he, says, he says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Once Peter has the right and appropriate response before the holy God and in humility begins to repent. Then he begins to hear this invitation by Jesus that he's going to be used by him. So not only does Isaiah, he has this, this reaction of seeing himself as, as unholy before God's holiness, but then he looks around. He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. And then he looks around and he says, and I live amongst the whole people who have unclean lips. There, are, there is brokenness all around me. He looks around and he says, we are really messed up. I mean, he's looking at Israel and he's in Judah and there's all sorts of idolatry and evil practices and wickedness. And he says, listen, he says, this whole world is messed up. It's all broken. And I'm living in the middle of it. Let me ask you, if you're ever going to become a sent one, into the world, you need to be able to look at the world with God's eyes and say, this whole world is messed up. It's all broken in, in some way, shape, or form. You know, I mean, have you ever, have you ever walked into the high schools here? <laughs> high schools are a scary place. You know, sometimes when a kid forgets something, I go, go drop something off. I got to go to high school. I'm like, whoa, this place is scary. You know? <laughs> and... And and my kids come back and they're like they're like dad you you just won't believe it you know it's it's like it's like they they said there are people there are, there are people in my classes they wear they wear animal ears and tails and they call themselves furries and they pretend like they're animals that's brokenness that's brokenness when you see the the lines on people's arms and the cutting that's going on. That's, that's brokenness. That's sad. That's not the way God intended it to be. You don't have to go to the schools. Don't, don't stop at the schools. Just go into the neighborhoods and take a look around. 
I have a friend who, in, in, in an attempt to become a missionary in his neighborhood, joined the uh, subdivision committee as the treasurer. And he tells me, he says, he, he said, Mike, you won't believe these guys. You know, 45-year-old men, in teen, you know, you know, but pretending, acting like they're teenagers, waiting for the next beer bash, waiting for the next party, living just for stuff, talking about the biggest boat that they can get. Meanwhile, their, their wives are neglected and their, their kids are ignored. That's brokenness. That's brokenness. And if we're, and if we're ever going to become sent ones by God, we need to be able to look around and just weep for our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and say, there's brokenness all around us. Not only am I broken, I, I'm broken. But you know what? There's brokenness all around me. And it's exactly when Isaiah begins to get in touch with the brokenness of himself and the world around him that the seraphs then, then fly to him with a live coal. And there's all sorts of activity going on and, and and he says, look, you know, I'm taking this live coal and I'm, I'm touching your lips and your sin is taken care of and your guilt atoned for. And, and the, the best thing that I can understand about this is that this live coal is a foreshadowing. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus Christ can take away our sin. Only Jesus Christ is the one that can, that can purge us from any kind of guilt before a holy God. In fact, if we look at the, the verse in First uh, John here, one seven, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The writer to the book of Hebrews goes on to say this, that because we've been purified from our sin, we actually can enter into God's presence with confidence. Okay? We don't have to be like Isaiah and be all afraid and everything like that. But he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by what? The blood of Jesus. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And so Isaiah, living a thousand years before Jesus, has his sin cleansed. And then and then it's at that point that he begins to listen. And as he's listening, he kind of like overhears the thoughts of God. It's like he, he kind of is eavesdropping in on a conversation of God and he just hears the musings of God as if he is talking to himself. And what does he hear him say? He says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? God is, God is looking throughout the world and he's looking at the brokenness that Isaiah sees and he's looking at the brokenness that we all see in our world and he's asking himself the question, who shall I send and who will go for us? Let me tell you, people, don't think for a moment that God hasn't stopped asking that question. Don't think for a moment that God hasn't stopped looking out over the brokenness of the world, looking over at the brokenness of Kioskim, looking over at the brokenness of West Bend, looking over at the, the brokenness in the foster care system, looking over at the brokenness in our schools, looking over at the brokenness in our marriages. And he hasn't stopped asking that question. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? 
In Second Chronicles, I believe it's chapter 16, it says this. It says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth looking for someone whose heart is fully committed to him. And when he finds that person, when he finds that man, when he finds that woman, he comes alongside of them and he strengthens them. And he strengthens them. And he's looking for men and women today who will look out at the brokenness in the world and hear God musing to himself, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And it's only at that point where Isaiah raises his hand and he says, here I am. Here I am. Send me. I'm not much. I'm I'm loaded with inadequacy and I've got all sorts of insecurities. But but send me. And God sends him amazingly. He's a sent one. Isaiah is a sent one. He's a a missionary. And and all of us who follow Jesus Christ, if we could ever get around to looking around at the brokenness in our world and ever getting around to being in touch with the Spirit of God, and hear the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? We all have that opportunity to raise our hands and say, Here I am. I'm not much. But if you can use me, I'll go. And at that point, you become a missionary. You become a missionary. Now, don't, don't wait until you're all sort of equipped and revved up and all sorts of that stuff like that, okay? You know, because there's an old saying that, that we used to say all the time before we went to Russia is that God doesn't, doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And you've all been called. You've all been called. If you take the time to hear the voice of God. So, so being a sent one, being a missionary has absolutely nothing to do with geography. It doesn't matter if you're in Africa or if you're matter in your in Russia or somewhere like that or if you're in, in Kiwaska or in Hartford. It has absolutely nothing to do with geography. It has everything to do with hearing the voice of God saying to himself, whom shall I send into the brokenness of the world? I have a couple of friends. I have a couple of friends. <laughs> They're on the payroll. <laughs> and, uh, and they're brothers, actually. Um, one, his name is Roger Enters, uh, and uh, he's part of our Jackson site. And the other one is his brother, Mark. Mark uh, and I climbed uh, Mount Elbrus in the North Caucasus this summer. He was on our team that went there. Uh, Mark uh, and his wife lived in Siberia the exact same time that we lived in uh, Siberia, where we were very close. We were only about a thousand miles apart from one another, but uh, that's that's close in Siberia. And and they and they come from this family, and they I know that that three of the boys out of the entire family are considered missionaries because they've lived overseas. Roger just came back from Guinea in West Africa. They got another brother who lived in Thailand for almost a decade. And then, and then Mark lived in, in Siberia, and they're all missionaries. And I remember talking to him one day. I'm like, man, you guys must have grown up in like some sort of super spiritual saturated house, man. Because like, like three, uh, three of the boys like got sent out as missionaries, and they're like, ha, 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 ha. far from it. 
Far from it. Uh, in fact, the neighbors referred to our, our house as a hell hole for potheads. Okay? Can I say that on Sunday morning? Yeah. That was, that was their house. That was their house. He said, uh, Mark says, I can remember when the cops would come over to, to bust one of, our, our, one of our brothers or something that my sister had me stand in a certain spot on the porch because uh, I didn't know why, but when the police came, then I was, I was hiding the pot plants that she was growing on the porch. Okay? Both their parents were alcoholics. Okay? Just completely absent, just self-absorbed into their own addictions. And the, the, so the kids were just wild. They were, they were the family that you didn't want your kids hanging out with. <laughs> okay? You don't send your kids over to the enter's house to play. Okay? But... Their dad went to the YMCA, and there he met a man named Pat Walsh. And I know Pat. He's a friend of mine. Pat was a new Christian at the time. He, he saw Mr. Enters and recognized that he was reaching the bottom of the barrel. He was bottoming out. And he invited him to a Bible study. Now, Pat hardly knew anything, but he knew the gospel. He knew that Jesus saved people. And he invited Mr. enters into a Bible study and, and Roger's dad, Mark's dad, repented after hearing the gospel and changed his entire life around. And his mom repented and received Christ and her life changed around. And there's this domino effect. All the boys ended up coming to Christ. And three of them went overseas to serve Christ. Isn't that incredible? All because of one man. We, in fact, we can probably have put some of those pictures up there. So there's Mark, circa 1995, when his family's in Russia. Then their next, their next, I'm sorry, I should have cued these early. That's their brother who lives in Thailand, you know, overseas. That's their dad who came to Christ late in life, uh, recovered from alcoholism. There's Pat and his wife, Annie. I think that's probably an older picture of them. But Pat is... He, I'm like, I, I, I'm like, Pat, he must have gone to seminary or something like that. He must, have, he must have, you know, been on a church staff or something like that. And they're like, no, he actually works for Peterbilt. Oh, so you can be like, you can be a sent one and, and work for a Peterbilt dealership? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, the Enter brothers, they're all back now. <laughs> they're back from, from Guinea, West Africa. They're back from Siberia. They're back from Thailand. But you know what? They haven't stopped being missionaries. Mark, is, uh, he's a teacher in the Milwaukee School District. <laughs> you can't get a much more darker uh, mission field than that right there. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he said he teaches in a diverse school. There's about three white kids in there. And, uh, and in this school, he has a chance to share Christ. He plays Christian music in his, in his classroom. And, uh, and the other day, he was telling me the story that there was one hood comes up to him. And he was playing Christian music. He was singing along with it. And he, this one guy says, what are you playing there, you know, Mr. Enters? And he's like, well, this is church music. And he says, are you a Christian? And he says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. He says, do you know what it means to be a Christian? And he says, no, I don't. And he explains the gospel to this kid in the Milwaukee school district. And the kid, he asked the kid, he says, now, do you understand? And, uh, and he, said, he said, yeah, I do. He said, he said do you, have you received Christ? He goes, you bet I did. I just did. 
And uh, he says, well, why don't you tell somebody? And he turns to this entire class of 32 kids. He says, hey, everybody, Jesus is my nigh. And he says that. <laughs> and he's, and Mark is like, that was a totally culturally appropriate thing to say. It's like, Jesus is my homie. He's my man. He has my back. I believe in him. And I'm like, Mark, you went from being a missionary in Siberia to now you're a missionary at Obama High School as a science teacher. And his brother, Roger, he's, he's doing it too. He's, he went from Africa and now he lives in Hartford and he's joined one of our missional communities in Hartford. And they're trying to figure out what does it look like to meet our neighbors, meet our neighbors and step into the lostness because they, they've heard God's voice say, who shall I send? Who shall I send into Hartford? Who will go for us? And they've raised their hand. They say, here am I. Here we are. We're not much. We've got all sorts of problems. But if you can use us, we're willing to go. I was just at West Bend, and I was talking to a gal who heard this uh, message last week in West Bend. And, uh, and she introduced me to her neighbor, She's like, I went home to be a missionary and invited my neighbor. Here's my neighbor. And I'm like, hi, neighbor. <laughs> Welcome to Kelbrook. You know, and she just took it to heart because she realized, you know, all of us can be sent ones from Jesus Christ. It has absolutely nothing to do with geography. It has absolutely everything to do with worshiping God in his holiness, seeing him for all of his holiness, for who he is, recognizing that we are sinful people and humbly asking God to take care of our sin in Jesus Christ. Then we begin to see the brokenness around us. And as we connect with God, we hear him saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And if we raise our, our hands and say, here am I, send me. You're sent one. You're sent one. Imagine what it would look like Everybody here walked away from this place and said to God, Here I am, God. Send me. Look out. (laughs) That'd be trouble for the evil one. Right there. Let's pray. Father God, 1 John 5 says, And we know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And as we look at our neighborhoods, as we look at our workplaces, as we look at our schools, we couldn't agree more. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. But you also say in 1 John chapter 5 that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of evil. And, Lord, we know that you can do this. And we think of Mr. Enters, who was all sorts of brokenness. Alcoholism, didn't care about his family. His kids were growing up wild. And because of one person, because of one man, who understood that he was a sent one by Jesus Christ, changed the entire trajectory of that family. And ended up impacting three 
countries because he realized that he was a missionary. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us here tomorrow morning would get before you in your presence and we'd be able to hear your voice saying, whom shall I send? And who will go to go for us? And we'd have the courage to say, here am I. Send me. I'm not much. All sorts of insecurities. But if you'll use me, I'll go. I pray all these things that Jesus, you might receive the glory. It's his name we pray. Amen.